going to be reading from Luke 18, 9 to 14. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax, but, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Um, just for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, one of the things we try to do here at, at Grace Valley is uh, take opportunity at the end of the sermon, if there's time, for questions. Um, and you'll see my phone number in the bulletin underneath the, the message title. If you have questions that pop up in your mind during the, the message, you can certainly text those questions to that phone number. I have my phone right here, and we'll uh, have a look and try to answer that question. Otherwise, you can, of course, raise your hand um, and ask it if you are so brave. Okay, we are back into, we, we started last week a series uh, on what's called gospel-centered living. Where What we're trying to understand is how this gospel message, this message that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, how that message impact in a practical way, in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day living, uh, a Christian. We sometimes know things in our heads, but don't necessarily know how to work them out in our actual lives. And the gospel is one of these things that, that, that can become so familiar to us that it no longer becomes effective in us. We can, we can minimize it. So, for example, last week we talked about how um, in order to have, be impacted by the gospel and truly traumatized in a good way by the gospel message, what has to happen is, is we have to keep the cross big. How do you keep the cross big in your life? By understanding the, the transcendent holiness and otherness of God and understanding the depth and seriousness of of your sin and rebellion against that God. And when those two things happen, uh, they sort of come together and ignite in us a, a wonder and amazement at the idea that God would sacrifice His Son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled to Him. That was last week. And we said that over the, the course of the life of a Christian, that concept, what I just explained to you, is supposed to get bigger. So I tried to use this visual. I'm not one of these PowerPointy guys, so I, I, I didn't make a PowerPoint, but I am going to be a PowerPoint. Uh, watch this slide. Uh, the, the idea is, is that you have God's holiness here, your sinfulness here, and the cross is what 
spans the gap between the two. And as you grow as a Christian, what's supposed to happen is your awareness of God's holiness and your awareness of your own sinfulness are both supposed to grow. Uh -huh. And that cross is supposed to get bigger. You get it? That doesn't mean that God is actually becoming more holy or that your awareness of your sin is you're, you're actually becoming more sinful. I hope not. It means that your understanding of those two things grows. And as they grow, your awe and wonder at what Jesus did for you on the cross grows at the same time. It, it, grows, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Problem is, that doesn't always happen in the Christian life. In fact, sometimes in the Christian life, the opposite happens. The longer you're a Christian, the more you kind of go, hmm, yeah, Jesus died for me, yay. And you don't, you don't find yourself overwhelmed and amazed and blown away by it. Why does that happen to us? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to try to understand why sometimes the cross, rather than growing in our lives, actually shrinks in our lives. And we're going to look at this text because it helps us understand what happens to us very often. This isn't comprehensive, but this is, this is certainly uh, a very good explanation of what happens to us. You can see on the back of your bulletin a little, uh, a little section on sermon notes here, and you'll see that there's kind of three main points that we're going to be looking at. We're going to look at the root of the problem together, why the gospel loses its punch in our lives. We're going to see the symptoms of that problem, and then of course, we have to talk about a remedy. What's the point of knowing what's wrong with you if you don't also move on to how that can be fixed? All right, first of all, the root of the problem. Why does this happen in us? Well, if you look at verse 9 of our passage, once again it says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there were some among the people who were listening to Jesus who, who felt righteous in and of themselves and, and they were looking down on others as being less righteous than them. And, and maybe as a modern person you're listening to that and you're going, what does this mean? What's this all about, this righteousness talk? Well, the word righteous in the Bible, basically it refers to this notion of being right, being passing muster. Passing scrutiny, gaining approval, or finding acceptance. And Jesus was speaking to a group of people known as Pharisees who believed that the way that they passed muster, the way that, that they gained acceptance with God, was through their moral integrity. If they kept the law right, if they did all the things that they were supposed to do, then God accepted them as righteous as opposed to rejecting them as unrighteous. And perhaps... As a modern person, you listen to that and you go like, well, what, what's, what is that all about? What does that have to do with today? That's such an old religious thing. These people, you know, trying to please God and trying to be accepted and all that stuff. You know, that's, they just got low self-esteem. That's probably actually very bad for their mental and, and psychological health. It's probably good to get rid of all that stuff altogether like we have done in our modern world. But not so fast, Okay. Let's not be so quick to poo-poo the concerns of ancient peoples because we are so much more advanced and, and understand the human psyche so much better. Why do you think in North America 
we spend billions of dollars on Botox or on plastic surgery or going to therapists to talk about how crappy we feel about ourselves and deal with our low self-esteem. You see, this, this need to be accepted, this, this feeling that we have deep down in our soul that, that we, want, we want to pass scrutiny and we want to, to uh, gain approval from somewhere exists in all of us, regardless of whether you're a religious person or a non-religious person. For the, for the Pharisees, it was religiously couched Okay? It was through moral rectitude and moral uprightness. Today, it's, it's through other things. It's through our, the beauty of our body or the success of our uh, relationships or the reputation we have in the community or how, how excellent our business is doing. Some of you may have heard of a guy named Arthur Miller. Uh, he's a famous uh, playwright who wrote uh, a, a, a number of plays. One of them is called After the Fall. And I, I quoted after the fall in front of your bulletin. It's a pretty long quote. This is by the character Quentin. Listen to what Quentin said. By the way, Arthur Miller, not a religious person at all, completely secular, uh, doesn't believe in God or anything. And this is what he has Quentin in this, this poem, or sorry, in this play, After the Fall, said. For many years, I looked at life like a case at law, like a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart then, later on, what a good lover you are. Then, later on, what a good father you are. And later on, how successful you are. Whatever. But underlying it all, I see now, there was a presumption. I felt I was on some kind of upward path towards some elevation where, I guess, I, I would be justified or even condemned. But there would be a verdict. I now realize my disaster began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight, no God, and all that remained was this endless argument with myself, the litigation of existence before an empty bench. Oh, that's beautiful writing, by the way. Which is another way of saying, of course, despair. And what is Miller saying? He's saying, you get rid of God, fine. Get rid of God but you don't get rid of the problem. No, God, same problem. We need a verdict. We need to be justified. We need to be told we are righteous. This is, this is the human condition, okay? And this happens to Christians, okay? Christians who have believed the gospel and they have said, you know what? I am justified by Jesus, it's not based upon my performance, it's not based upon my obedience, none of that kind of stuff. They lose sight of that all the time. Uh, one preacher likes to say that, that uh, well, Martin Luther, he said that this notion of, of being justified in, in Jesus and not by your own works, etc., it's the heart of the gospel message, and he says that the job of ministers, which I am, is to preach it constantly and beat it continually into your heads. Because the default mode of the human heart is to justify itself. The problem is, we're constantly failing at doing it. And so we're, we're afraid and worried that we're, that we're actually accomplishing the thing we're after. So this is the root of the problem. 
The root of the problem is this idea that we can, we can work for our justification. We can be righteous in and of ourselves. That's the first problem. So what are the symptoms of this problem? This is the problem. What are the symptoms of the problem? Well, back in the text, we discover that there are two main symptoms that are described in this passage. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, in verse 11 where it says uh, he prayed thus to God, uh, it, it, it could be that he's saying either I prayed, he prayed to himself or he prays about himself. It, it's hard to kind of translate the words there. But notice that he stands apart. Where it says he, that he stood up, literally it says he stands apart. He stands by himself. He separates himself from, from these other people. And he play, prays very, very loudly for others to hear. And in these, these short phrases, he uses the first person five times. I thank you that I am not like this. I do this, and I do this, and I do this. What's this guy praying? He's not thanking God for his goodness. He's thanking God for his own goodness. He's basically saying, God, I thank you that I'm awesome. I'm so grateful that I rock. And this looks like pride, right? It looks like run-of-the-mill hubris to us, and it's true. But, but you've got to go a little bit deeper because... That pride is being manifested in this man in particular ways. What is he doing? When he prays the way he prays, what is he doing? He's doing two things in particular. The first thing he's doing is he's pretending. And you can see this here. He, he, what he does is, is he, 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 he employs these tactics that minimize his sin in order to minimize the gap between him and God. He thinks that he is a super upright, morally upright God, and he just assumes that God agrees with him. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men. How does he know that? How does he know that he's so great? Why is he so sure? Here's how he compares himself, right? He compares himself a little. He says, I'm, I thank you, this is verse 11 again, I'm not an extortioner. Or uh, other translations use the word robber. So I don't steal, right? He says, I'm, I'm not unjust. Other translations use the word evildoer. You know, I don't break the law. I'm not unfair to other people, that kind of thing. And I'm not an ad adulterer, which all translations say the same. And what he does is, is he lists this, this list of, of sins, right? Things like injustice and adulterer and extortionist and all that kind of stuff. And they're the sins that other people are prone to, perhaps, or this tax collector here. They're sins that other people are prone to, and he calls them out as being much worse than other sins that could be committed. Other sins that maybe are not so easy to see, like the pride that's in his own heart. And look, this is what we do. This is one of our most popular tactics, okay? You sin, 
you struggle with a, a certain sinful tendency, and I know this is what you do. I know because I do it. Right? And I don't think we're all that different from one another. This is what you do. You say to yourself, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. Or at least I don't do such and such. And we create hierarchies in our heads. And we say, look, these are the bad ones. These are the things that you really should never, ever, ever do. And if you ever, ever do those things, well, then you are anathema. Then you are, you are truly condemned. And then these are the other things that are bad, but, you know, they're not that bad. And case in point, in the church where we love to, it's ironic, you know, this is supposed to be the place of grace, but in the church is probably the place where we work out these hierarchies in more detailed fashion than anywhere else. And so what's at the top of the list? Sexual sin, right? Like the Pharisee, adultery, sexual immorality, fornication. These things are terrible. But, you know, drunkenness much to drink at the party. Is that such a big deal? Or what about greed? That's hard to define anyway. What is greed really? You know? Okay, so I've got three houses, but I don't have seven. <laughs> that's, that's one that we would not emphasize or we would not call out too quickly. Consumerism, right? This need to uh, acquire things. Acquisitiveness. Or what about gossip? You know, basic old gossip. <coughs> Saying things about other people for the purpose of sullying them. You might even be saying the truth. You might even be saying it under the guise of a prayer request. But what's the motivation behind it? And, and you see, when we focus on specific sins, here's what we're doing. We're avoiding the whole complex of sin that is within us. There's a theologian by the name of Richard Lovelace who wrote something very brilliant. He said this. Try to listen carefully. I'll try to make it easy to understand. The structure of sin in the human personality is something far more complicated than the isolated acts and thoughts of deliberate disobedience commonly designated by the word sin. In its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or limited to patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Here's what he's saying. Maybe I should have just said this instead of quoting him. But it makes me sound smart if I quote someone. He's saying this. When you focus on discrete sins, behaviors, you miss the point. You're missing the fact that at the root of human sin is this complex of psych, what he calls psychological or organic network of your compulsive attitude your compulsive beliefs, and your cult compulsive behaviors. In other words, you know what he's saying? You're missing the fact that you are more wicked than you're willing to admit. 
that deep down inside there are there are rebellious, self-centered tendencies that are constantly popping up in all kinds of little ways that you don't bother thinking about and working out because it's much easier for you to look at him and say, he slept with someone who's not his wife. Sinner, wrong, bad. That's what the Pharisee does. The Pharisee, he focuses on these behaviors, right? He focuses on these symptoms. And when you focus on these behaviors, these outside acts, these symptoms, you, you miss the depth of sin. So, so for example, let's say, let's say you say to yourself, you know, it's time I get my act together. You know, I've got this issue. Let's say you're, hmm, let's say you're a young man who has been struggling with pornography. And you say, it's time I nip this in the bud. It's time I deal with this. It's time I get my act together. I'm going to get me some accountability. I'm going to get me some filters on all my devices. I'm going to uh, talk to a sponsor once a week or whatever and, and, and uh, confess what's going on in my life. Fine. That's all good. But if you're just trying to stop a behavior, okay, you're not going deep enough. You're simply doing what you could call sin management or behavior modification. It's not deep enough. I, I, uh, I, I uh, got really addicted to the TV show uh, 24, like way after it was over. Okay, I think I finished it like three months ago. So on Netflix. And after the, I, I don't know why, because the formula is so duh, like it's the same all the time in every episode and in every season. But here's the formula for 24. There's a bad guy. And Jack Bauer goes after the bad guy. But by episode three or four, you discover pretty quickly he's not the real bad guy. There's a bad guy behind the bad guy. And if you just get the bad guy and not get the bad guy behind the bad guy, there'll be another bad guy. <laughs> so you've got to go after the real bad guy. And that's what Jack Bauer was always trying to tell everybody, and they wouldn't listen to him. Well, I'm trying to tell you, please listen to me. you got to go after the real bad guy. Why do you lie? Why do you get drunk? Why are you ungenerous with your money? Why do you gossip? Why are you so anxious? There are idols behind the symptom. You gotta stop pretending. Now that's the first one. The second one that this guy does is he performs. See, when you pretend, what you do is you shrink the cross by minimizing your sin, okay? But when you perform, you shrink the cross by minimizing God's holiness. Pharisee does this, and I do this. Look at verse 12 once again. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Interesting. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. If you know the Old Testament well, you'll know that what the Pharisee does here is he actually overperforms. Um, 
The Old Testament does not require you to fast twice a week. It requires you actually to only fast once a day on the Day of Atonement. The Old Testament does not require you to tithe on everything you get. The requirement was to tithe on certain things. But this guy is going to God and saying, God, look at me. I am a top performer, okay, God? Look at me. I'm constructing here a stairway to holiness. And by my performance, I am able to, to bring myself closer to you by doing these things that are above and beyond even the requirements that you have set out in your law. And, and you know, any, any Christian has to admit that they have a tendency to do this. You do this too, right? You become a Christian. You're converted, like really converted. And you say, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins, etc. My life is going to change. Now on Saturday, Sunday morning, you get up and you go to church. Those of you who have been Christians all your life, you don't understand what kind of a radical lifestyle change that is for people. When they become a Christian and they say, now on Sunday morning, I'm not going to get up late and read the New York Times. I'm going to get up early and I'm going to go to some weird building that I never used to go to ever before and stand there and sing to someone I can't see and listen to some guy bark at me about a book that is really, really old. Like this is, okay, mind-blowing change behavior. And you're thinking, I'm giving God now an hour and a half of my time on Sunday morning. That's a big deal. So that's a pretty good step up that stair of stairway of holiness, right? And then, you know, after a little bit of while, a little while, you say to yourself, well, you know, I, I should, uh, I should pray, and not just on Sunday. I'm gonna like pray on Monday before I eat something and give thanks for it. I'm gonna try reading that Bible. Um, and then you get really involved in, in church. And say, I'm going to serve. I'm going to sign up. I'm going to click on, I'm going to go to gracevalleychurch.ca. And where it says serve, I'm going to click on some stuff. And I'm going to go do it. And then you say, I'm going to evangelize. I am actually going to share this belief with someone else. That's pretty good. You're making some serious headway up the stairway of holiness. And then, finally, the coup de grace, you go on a mission trip. Well, now God really loves me. And maybe you laugh at that, but come on. I know you think it's stupid in your head, but you do it in your heart all the time. If you're honest with yourself, do you really believe God loves you more when you're doing that stuff then when you're doing that other stuff I was listening, drunkenness, gossip, greed, etc. Ask yourself this question. What does God think of me right now? Think about the week you've had, stuff you've done. What does God think of you right now? What's his face look like if you were to use that kind of language? That's dangerous, I admit, but... Like, is he angry with you? Is he frowning at you? Is he disappointed in you? Because of some of the stuff you done did last week? Or, or, or do you picture him, like, thinking, yeah, Paul, he's a pretty good guy. He worked hard this week. Like, I did a wedding yesterday. Um, 
You've got to realize, friends, that according to the gospel, God is neither disappointed with you or impressed with you. But he's deeply satisfied with you. He's neither disappointed with you or impressed with you, but he deeply cherishes you. And unless you get that, you cannot grow spiritually. You will always either be pretending or performing. So how do you get to that point? How do you get to that point where you no longer see God as either disappointed in you or very uh, impressed by you, but he simply cherishes you as you? Well, we need that remedy. That's right here in verse 13. The tax collector. The tax collector, it says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, first point, very quickly. Technically, it does not say a sinner. It says the sinner. But translators, I think they would, they find it conf they would confuse readers if it said the sinner. But it's actually kind of a significant point. Commentators, all the commentators point out that what this guy is understanding is true repentance. Because he calls himself the sinner. In other words, he's not comparing himself with other people. He's not saying... Like the publican, well, God, I know I, you know, I ain't perfect, but I'm not like that guy, and I'm not like that guy. He just says, God, I am the sinner. I know I'm lost, and when where where everyone else is at, that doesn't really matter. And until you stop comparing yourself, you will you will always be a sinner. And as long as you are a sinner, not the sinner, not just seeing yourself up against. God, you will always try to find a way to, to slip out from underneath the law of God and think that your performance is good enough. There's this quote from John Calvin on the front of your bulletin where he says this, As long as we do not look, look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves more sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder His nature and how completely perfect are His righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then, what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. You get what we're talking about, right? We talked about it last week, too. Let's say you're a pretty good athlete, and you get invited to try out for... Let's say you're good at volleyball. Pretty good volleyball player. Your friend, you know, you get a lot of killed. Your friends think you're you're pretty good. You're always a starter on all your teams, and uh, you say, you know what, Mac University, by the way, probably the best volleyball program in the country right now, has an open tryout, and you say, I'm going to go check that out. I think I'm going to walk on, and uh, you know, I went to a little school out of the way, so they didn't discover me. But once they do, they will welcome you with open arms. And you show up at the tryout, and you just stand there with your mouth gaping wide open at the way these guys can hop and the hits and the blocks and you can't even understand the system 
that they use because it is way beyond anything you ever played. And you, you go like this. And you're out of there because you're just so embarrassed because your shortcomings have been exposed up against the glory of their, their capabilities. You thought you were pretty good, but not so much. That's precisely what has happened to this tax collector as he stands before God. That's the first thing. The second thing is you've got to discover a whole new way to find approval. The tax collector says something very interesting. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that word, hilasterion, it's a Greek word for mercy. Literally, it means propitiate, which doesn't help you at all. I know it. It's like just another big word. It means atone for, which still might not help you very well. Uh, what it means is, is this. Have mercy on me means turn away your anger from me. You see, in the Old Testament, in the temple, it was divided into three places. There was the, 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 the courtyard, okay? Then there was the holy place, and then there was the holiest of holies. The courtyard, anybody could go. In the holy place, only the priests could go. And the holiest place was a place where there was something called the Ark of the Covenants. It was this, this very strange, mysterious box in this room. And that box represented the presence of God himself. And in that box was the Ten Commandments. And the, the, nobody was allowed in that room ever at all, okay? Except once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into that room and he would take the blood of a lamb and he would splash it on this box. But actually he wasn't just splashing it all over this box. He was splashing it on this seat on top of the box called the mercy seat. And the reason the Ten Commandments were in this box was because it, because it symbolized the fact that the only way you could get into the presence of God and be in the presence of God was by obeying his law. But nobody could do that. And that's why the high priest had to go in and he had to sprinkle blood on this mercy seat. Same word. This halastrion seat, you see. And it was only by blood being shed that you could atone for failing to keep those Ten Commandments and be brought into the presence of God. All right? So this is, this is all that's going on in the background of Luke chapter 18. The man, when he says, have mercy on me, he is not saying, God, you know, let me off, reduce your standards, that kind of thing. What he's begging is, is that God would take his sin away. Atone for it. Be the mercy seat. Let me come in under the mercy seat somehow. And scripture teaches that God did just that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says something remarkable. Listen to this. Therefore he, that is, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, listen for it, to make propitiation, to make halastrion for the sins of the people. Jesus made atonement. He took away God's wrath. You see, he became the sinner for us. 
And now approval comes not through pretending or performing. It comes through mercy, you see. You stand approved before God based upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. You don't have to do anything. You just stand there and realize that God is neither angry with you and disappointed with you. He's not impressed with you, but he is deeply, deeply satisfied with you. He cherishes with you, cherishes you not based upon your performance, but based upon his son's. He thinks you're wonderful. Now, recognizing this, this grows the cross in your life. Yeah, it uncovers the truth about you, but it uncovers the truth about him too at exactly the same time. <coughs> and it frees you from this paradigm, from this poor Arthur Miller paradigm of living your life thinking that, that life is a case at law, trying to justify yourself by how great a husband you are, or how great a wife you are, or how great a worker you are, or how great a friend you are, or how brilliant and intellectual you are, or how great an athlete you are. You can lay that all aside. It's radically freeing. And the life of a Christian, weird as it may sound, basically boils down to this. Learning how to rest in that all the time. That's the secret. The secret is learning how to rest in that all the time. Because you see, when you learn to rest in that, then in the moment when you want to gossip, you won't. In the moment when you want to lust, you won't. Because the idols that are driving you to gossip or to lust or to consumerism or to substance abuse, those idols are being dethroned in your life, you see? Doesn't mean you don't have to work at it, but it's the starting point. I usually have to come up with a really cool quote for my conclusions. I couldn't come up with one for this morning. So I will just say, let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to see that we don't have to pretend, we don't have to perform, we just have to rest. Rest in the one who made atonement for us, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for him. Thank you for his gift of dying in our place. Thank you that we don't have to impress you you are neither impressed or disappointed with us, but you are deeply satisfied with us. And may that be enough for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.